So Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 20 through chapter 3, verse 4. And if you would, read this text with me. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belonged to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for Christ. I pray now that you would show us his glory, show us his beauty. Show us your faithfulness to us. Open our eyes to see how we are united with Christ and how this informs us, how this informs our church family, how this informs our day by day in life, and how this informs our eternity. And let us see this splendidly through your word and through your Spirit's work within us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In May of 2006, 37-year-old Guy Goma was applying for and about to interview for a job in the accounting department at a large company or corporation in Great Britain. So Guy uh, had studied the position. He had He had seen everything that was required, he had submitted his information, and he had been invited in uh, for an interview. So on that morning of that interview, he uh, had his breakfast, and he was looking over the information for the job and and reminding himself of what he was going to seek to convey in the interview and why he felt he was cut out for the job, and he put on his uh, uh, best clothes and and, and got got on the way and, and went to the job interview, and he gets to the lobby of this uh, large company, and he sits down for, for the, uh, he checks in at the front desk, and he sits down, and he's just kind of waiting there and, and waiting there, and eventually a, an intern uh, from the company runs out and says, are you Guy? And he says, yeah, that's me. And he says, all right, come on back with us. So Guy goes back, and they put him in a room uh, where he's waiting again, and then some people come in, and they start to uh, put makeup on him and, and start, to, start to kind of fix him up a little more, and Guy kind of thinking to himself, well, this is odd. This is not what I expected in the interview. Uh, but, you know, you know, every, every, you, you know what it's like when you go on an interview. You just kind of roll with it and, and act like you know what's happening and don't say anything that might rock the boat. And uh, so that's what Guy did. So he's, uh, he, he, they finish his makeup pretty quickly, and, and they, they say, all right, Guy, you're, you're all set to go. Uh, 
uh, if you have any questions or anything like, like that, just let us know. So they usher him into another room, a, a little more fancy room, and an, another lady from the company walks in, and she says, uh, hi, guy, how are you doing? And she introduces herself to him and says, ask you ready to go? Uh, you got all your information? He said, yep, I'm, I'm squared away. I, I think I'm ready. So he says, great, we'll begin in just a moment. So after a moment, before Guy really picks up on what's going on, uh, some bright lights come on, some cameras turn on, and uh, Guy realizes pretty quickly, but not quickly enough, what is happening. And this lady that had walked in and sat down with him said, I'm now joined by Guy Cuny, who is here to uh, speak with us this morning and shed some light on today's ruling. See, Guy Goma was there for an accounting interview. Guy Cuny was an expert in copyright law and in legalese and all of that. And this large corporation that Guy was interviewing with was the BBC. And Guy was put before millions of people with the cameras on, the lights shining, and had to fake his way through an interview. If you go look it up on YouTube, it's quite interesting. His face, when he realizes what's happening, is uh, quite a sight to behold. Mistaken identity is a funny thing. It's possible for two people or two entities to have the same name, to reside in the same place, to look similar in perhaps many ways, and yet to be entirely different. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae because he was worried about the church developing a case of mistaken identity themselves. You see, when it came to their understanding of Christianity, particularly in regards to who they were, who they are in Christ, they had a good grasp on things, but there was an outside threat. There was an outside danger to their understanding of the gospel. You see, what was happening in Colossae is that the church was rooted and grounded in the gospel, this, this, this message, this good news. Gospel means good news. This good news of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and His reign that is ongoing to today and, and how they as a church, as His people, were united with Him through His work, what He had accomplished, what He had done on their behalf and in their place. And yet they're hearing from voices outside the church that they needed additional works, additional actions of their own. You could say that they heard they needed to do something themselves to do their part in order to make themselves right with God or to be accepted by God. But Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae in order to say to them, and by the grace of God to us, Dear Christian, the death of Christ is your death to empty works, to meaningless, empty pursuits of false righteousness, and the resurrection and reign of Christ is your resurrection and hope in life directly united with Him. This is union with Christ. What He accomplished is given to us, is credited to us, we are united with Him in it in ways that we cannot quite grasp with our finite minds, but in ways that we see clearly illustrated 
across Scripture. And so this morning we're going to see our union with Christ in his death. You see verses 20 to 23, they begin with, since you died with Christ. And then we're going to see it in his resurrection, since then you have been raised with Christ. In verses 1 to 4. So let's look first at our death with Christ. Verse 20, read this with me. Since you died with Christ to the the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belonged to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So one aspect of this false teaching that was threatening the church was some form of legalism. We don't know exactly all that was unfolding. But if you look throughout chapter 2, you see it touched on uh, with Paul in verse 8, and then in verses 16 to 19, and then here as well uh, in in verses 20 to 23. And and legalism is an expectation or it's a requirement of some kind of behavior in order to make yourself right with God. Like, I have to do my action, my work, to justify myself or to make myself right with God. That's, That's legalism. And the impetus for legalism is that you do your part... And, and you hold up your end of the bargain. But Paul asks here, why do you submit to these rules if you died with Christ? Why do you still try to hold up your end of the bargain? And so if we look at what's happening here in Colossians chapter 2, it's, it's, it's easy with our, with our modern uh, sensibilities to chuckle at some of these things we, we see listed. If you look specifically down at verses 16 to 19, You see things like festivals and and observing new moons and Sabbath observances and visions and worship of angels and asceticism. And these are just a few of the things that were going on. And, and, And I don't think that after the service today, there's going to be anybody in the lobby that is going to have a conversation that's going to say, you know, I didn't see so and so at the new moon festival last week. I'm kind of worried about her. You know, we we don't we don't struggle with these. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, okay, is this something that was present in Colossae now, or is this diagnosing something greater, something that could also be at play in our world as well, be threatening to our understanding and our application of the gospel and in in our union with Christ today where we are? See, lest we get puffed up, we would be wise to at least consider a couple of ways that legalism can threaten us. And we have a, probably have a myriad of, legal, uh, of brands of legalism that we could mention, but I'll just take a couple here, and I'll take a risk with these. Uh, first, there's what I'll call uh, baby boomer legalism. Don't worry, baby boomers, I'm, I'm coming for millennials next, so just, just relax, okay? So, and these are just general out, generalities, so don't, don't get bent out of shape, don't let this rock your boat too much if you have a problem with it. Uh, email somebody other than me, um, but but so so this is kind of older, if I can say that older view of things is kind of this buttoned up existence. Maybe there's a little bit of, of judgmentalism. Maybe there's uh, some some strong expectations in regards to conduct or in regards to behavior. And specifically, maybe this ties into the Bible in Christ as, as the Bible and Christ are used maybe as, as a standard to be met, as a law to be kept, a moral expectation to be achieved. And oftentimes with this, there's, there's perhaps even a yearning or a pining for, for the days of old. It'd be nice to go back to Mayberry or something like that. 
You, you, you perhaps look at the world, or we look at the world. You don't have to be older to look at the world and say, oh, I don't know what's going on around here. And to, to long for the days of old. But the concern with this is that it desires to go back to, to perhaps Mayberry's morality when what is needed is Calvary's cross in the life of the church. And, and the, this, legalism says, this legalism says that, okay, you, you have this standard that you must measure up to in behavior and action and conduct. This legalism says, Jesus, thank you for the cross, but now I'll take it from here. You grasp that? And so that's baby boomer legalism. Second kind of legalism that might threaten the church today is we'll, we'll go with millennial legalism. And this version of legalism focuses upon the responsibility that we have to not judge others, to be tolerant, to be authentic, to ultimately what? To be true to yourself. You catch how some of these are expectations or, or, or cultural desires that can be placed upon the church and how she conducts herself. And so this being true to yourself is the highest authority in your life. In this, you can, uh, you can yearn or you can pursue or you can work for, or you can go hard after a social cause or, in, or initiative, which, all of these are, which, which some of these are, are certainly good things, but in losing sight, but, but, but in this view, we can lose sight of the message of the cross as it gets lost, as a message of faith and repentance gets replaced by a message, another kind of legalism that's oriented around social action or social responsibility. And so this legalism can make little of or enough ignore the cross and it can place an emphasis on a desired ethic and can make Jesus a good teacher, but not a king before whom we repent and a king before whom we surrender our lives. And so we have different ways, different forms of legalism that we can try to bend into, whether it be morality and some kind of buttoned-upness or a social action or social responsibility that we can bend or try to synchronize into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that we can actually risk losing or abandoning or neglecting or losing the power of that gospel if we start to try to make it things that it is not. See, Paul wrote of this legalism in Colossae in verse 22. He says, look, read on with me in verse 22. He says it's, it's based on, on merely human commands and in, and in teaching, it's, it's, all perished, it's all destined to perish with use. It's based on human commands and teachings. Such re, look, listen to verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, with their false humility, with their harsh treatment of the body. They, they look like there's something to it. But they're based on what we can be led to think in our time with our finite minds that Christianity and the church should be, as opposed to what Christ and His Word dictates it is. You see, our standard is not to be rooted in the here and now and, and, and what we expect that it, what, what expect, expectations are placed upon us in our following of Christ. But our standard is in the finished work of Christ, His cross, His resurrection, and in His reigning and His supremacy over His church in the here and now. Paul says, be careful that these outside voices don't start to dictate the life and the philosophy and the theology and the belief and the practice of your church, but only anchor it in Christ and in His work within you. You see, here's a danger of this. Either one of these that I listed, as well as these that Paul listed that the church at Colossae was dealing with, 
they addressed nothing more than outward behavior modification. They addressed outward behavior modification, not inward transformation. See, it's so easy to try to put the name of Christ on behavior modification and to totally miss the necessary inward transformation. See, the problem with both of these and the problem in Colossae is that though there are positive characteristics about them, though there are maybe even good things they offer, they're ultimately rule-based and they ignore reality. And you see Paul touch on this in verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and even their harsh treatment of the body. But what's he say next? They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I actually, um, I actually like the translation, or, or think the translation from the ESV, we're using the NIV here, but I think the translation from the ESV is, 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 is in my estimation, more accurate here. It says, uh, it, it says that these, these actions, these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These rules don't address the need that the reality of our hearts dictates. They're just window dressing when there's a much greater, much deeper need. And so here's an illustration what's what, what trying to work on our own efforts, what trying to do our part, what trying to do our, our responsibility to try to say, okay, Jesus, you've done your part, now I do mine. Here, here's, here, listen to this illustration. Every year, the largest migration of people on the planet happens uh, in conjunction with the Spring Festival in China which is actually ongoing right now. At Spring Festival, a large part of China's 1.6 billion people travel back to their hometowns in order to celebrate the holiday with family and with with loved ones. So I read this story this week about a man who was a migrant worker on China's east coast, and he was wanting to go visit his family way up uh, in, in kind of the northeast part of the country, some 1,700 kilometers away. And he, he so he, he was... Uh, didn't have the money to, to buy a plane ticket or a train ticket or even a bus ticket, so he set about on his bike to start going that way. 1,700 kilometers. So he set about riding, and after 310 miles, the authorities stopped him for something unrelated, and in a conversation with them, he found out that he had gone all 310 miles in exactly the wrong direction. And it all started when somebody told him, you need to take a right out of here and not a left. And when he needed to go left, he went right, and the rest was history. Legalism, or adding these extra subtle expectations upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we are made right with Christ, does the same thing. It promises to take you somewhere, but you pedal, you pedal, you pedal, you pedal, and it serves you no good whatsoever, even leading you in the wrong direction in regards to how much effort you put forth. Now just an FYI, this poor guy that rode the wrong direction, some folks had sympathy on him and bought him a ticket home, so it ended well. But brothers and sisters, Paul is seriously concerned about the church corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not because he just says, I want to be right. but Because he's concerned about their souls. And he's concerned about their souls because he knows that if they start to trust in themselves, or they start to trust in what they do, what they bring to the table, 
then they are actually beginning to start to not trust in, or they are going to believe something apart from the work of Christ and the hope and the new life that he gives. So this is why he begins the section with, if you then died with Christ. So he's saying that, that, that if you died with Christ, the price has been paid. Christ has paid the debt for you. In his cross, he endured the wrath of God upon your sins. In his life, he, he, he earned and achieved the righteousness that is required of you, and he credits it to you. And so Paul says, if you start to believe otherwise, you start to tell Christ to his righteousness was not good enough, and his cross did not accomplish enough. And Paul says this is very dangerous, incredibly dangerous for the church to begin to believe. Let me ask you if you're here today and you consider your understanding of Christianity. Do you have a view of Christianity that replaces expectations or burdens upon you in earning God's favor? Do you feel as if there's some kind of agreement that you have, maybe even unstated with God, where Jesus has done His part, now I do mine? Dear soul, I pray that you would find grace and truth today to see that Christ's cross is totally sufficient, entirely sufficient to atone for your sin and to justify you before God. See, all these voices, they have no say because you are united with Christ. So all these outside expectations, all these outside standards, they have no say over you because you are united with Christ and you died with Christ. If you died with Christ, why do you still try to live and earn his favor? Look back with me, uh, back earlier in chapter 2, in verses 13 and 14. See the reality of our death with Christ in these verses. When you were dead in your, tra- in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, He took it away, what? Nailing it to the cross. He nailed your sins and mine to the cross of Christ. And Paul says that there is grace in this, there is mercy in this, there is life in this that these other things cannot offer. So let me ask parents, grandparents, what is your prayer for your children? Oh, it can be so subtle to want so much good for your children and grandchildren, but don't give them a Christianity that is rooted in personal success or accomplishment or good behavior, but doesn't give them a crucified Savior and a call for them to die to self and find life in Him. Don't pray for your children to find some form of Christianity that takes them to Mayberry and its morality and not to a cross where a crucified Savior calls them to Himself. Young folks, teenagers, college students, young adults, what is your expectation for Christ? If the Jesus that you follow never disagrees with you or the culture around you, but He is actually just a means for you, for, for you or the culture around you advancing your cause, then He is actually a Jesus that you have created in your mind. And He is not the Jesus who went to the cross and rose again and reigns. His commands and His call to follow Him were hard 2,000 years ago, and His call to follow Him is difficult today. 
difficulty in following Christ does not mean that he is not worth following. You see, it's so much easier to try and live by our own created standards or in accord with the cultural expectations around us for Christ and His church than it is to die with Christ and find life in Him. But Paul says in Christ's death, you find life in trying to live these other ways. Ultimately, they will bring about death. Oh, let's trust the sufficiency of Christ and His cross this morning. Let's worship in light of the sufficiency of the finished work of Christ. Let's delight in the promise and in the hope that there is nothing left for you to accomplish in order to earn God's favor and in order to earn God's love. It has all been purchased. It has all been bought. It has all been atoned for in Christ. And if we have died with Christ, now let's continue on to see the life we do now live in Christ. Look with me at chapter 3. So previously, if you died with Christ, now since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Now this language that Paul uses here in, chapter, in, in verses 1-4 through four can be a little difficult to, to really get, to really grasp what Paul is getting at. But now he's transitioned from the question of if the price has been paid in Christ's death, to now the new life has begun and we've been raised with Him. And so consider these two things as we try to say, okay, now how do I live in light of Christ's death? In light of the fact that, that there's not some standard I have to meet, in light, of, in light of the fact that Christ has finished the work, in light of the fact that I am united with Him, so now what do I do? How does my life look? And so consider these verses as we, as we walk through this. So Paul says a couple of things here. First of all, in verse 1, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things that are above. So setting the hearts on things that are above. And then in the next verse, he says, set your minds on things that are above. So set our hearts, set our minds. The language of, of, of setting the heart on things above is not so much about feelings. The, the, the word that Paul is using here in the original language is not so much about feelings or, 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 or any kind of emotional thing, but, but it actually indicates our desires, our plans, our direction in life. This is an outward direction, an outward will for our lives. So Paul is actually saying, set your minds on Christ and His work and let it dictate the outflowing, the pouring out, the unfolding of your life, of your day by day. And so now, dive in with me here. Okay, so verse 1. Look at the, let, let's, let's, let's break down verse 1 here. Since you've been raised with Christ, you got raised with Christ at the beginning of the sentence, and then Paul references where Christ is seated at the right hand of God at the end of the sentence. You've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so then you have this set your, set your hearts on things above in the middle. And so as we say, okay, how do I live my life? How do I plan? How do I seek to direct my life as one who has been raised with Christ? Well, I think the answer is here in, in, in how Paul lays this out. I live in light of the fact that Christ defeats sin and death and gives me new life. I live in hope of the promise that I've been raised with Him, that I have new life in Him, and that He is reigning today at the right hand of God the Father. The last part of verse 1. 
Therefore, in light of the the raised Christ and the reigning Christ, me in the middle, I can be boldly confident in His direction and in His plans and in His unfolding and His hand at work in my life as it unfolds. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. What? For His name's sake. He is reigning. He is ruling. His present reign of Christ, dear saint is a precious balm to the weary soul who is confused about her future. Because you have been raised with Christ, He is presently reigning. Let that balm comfort your heart. And trust Him with your day by day by day. He is our shepherd. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So we set our hearts on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Next, we set our minds on things above. Not on earthly things. And then verse 3, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. If the, if the heart is set on plans, if the heart's set on direction in my life, then... The mind that Paul references here, the the language that he uses, is more of like an inward bent. It's a disposition. It's a wiring to to go this way. It's like a car that's alignment is set to to veer. My wiring is to to pursue Christ, to set my mind on Christ, to, to have this bent towards Him. It's a disposition deep within you, inclined and birthed out of the fact that I have been raised with Him. Because what? I've been raised with Him and new life in Him. The old Stephen, the old you, if you were in Christ, died. And so the, the new life is united with Christ and His work within you. So this internal leads to external. So remember in, 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 verse, in, in chapter 2, remember Paul saying you got all these outside regulations, but they don't address the heart. They were like external trying to, do, trying to put, put lipstick on a pig, but it wasn't addressing the internal. And now Paul says, actually, the internal shapes and flows into the external. Okay? You tracking on that? That's an incredible important, something of incredible importance as we understand following Christ and we understand His grace and His work within us. Holy action is birthed out of a completed work of Christ. At a risk of trying to illustrate this, one of the great accomplishments of my life. One of them. Not the greatest. I've got a lot of accomplishments. But one of the great accomplishments of my life has been the fact that my intramural dodgeball team in college went back to back to back winning school titles. It's a three-peat for those of you that can't count. Now, it helps when you spend eight years in college, but... Uh, Not our state school. We never lost a game in three years. We loaded the team up with guys that could sling it, none of whom could throw any more gas than I could. This was a big deal. I still have the celebratory shirts that we were given by our school's recreation department after each title, after I took down frat boy after frat boy after frat boy with those dodgeballs, just bang, bang, bang. We were a dynasty that the Patriots still aspire to be like. (laughs) And here's the thing. 
we would wear those shirts around with such swagger, with such confidence. Actually, we wouldn't wear them around campus a whole lot. They were kind of ugly. But I still have the shirts, and if you see me at the gym sometime, you might see me wearing one. I'm like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, remember in the glory days. But the, the shirts, we would wear the shirts, and, and knowing that we had won, knowing that we were victorious, knowing that we were the three-time champions, informed our conduct. This past action informed how we conducted ourselves, informed how we lived. And Paul is saying, the past action of Christ in his death, but now also in his resurrection, is the same as if it's not that Christ won, but it's actually as if because you are united with him, you walked out of that tomb. You see, we don't look at Christ in the empty tomb and say, yeah, our guy won. Take that, other gods. We looked at Christ and the union that we have with Christ. See verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. We look at him and don't say, our guy won. We look at him and say, I walked out of that tomb with him. This is the Christian hope. I walked out with him. And so, so this sets this new direction. If you have walked out of a tomb, your life begins to look different. And it's not trying to earn his favor. That's accomplished in Christ. But it's this new direction, this new mindset that is possible. Why? Because I have this new life that is hidden with Christ in God. I love the language of verses 3 and 4. So Paul says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The old Stephen is gone. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You died. The old one is done. The new one raised to life with Christ. Remember the church at Colossae was being told how little their faith was. How much they were missing out on these other religious experiences or visions. There's worship of angels and visions that people are all puffed up about that Paul says. But Paul says, your life's hidden with Christ. You are raised with Him. Experience Him through His work through you and you'll see His glory one day. All these other stuff, they're mumbo-jumbo. They don't compare to Christ. Christ's work within you is far more glorious than any other religion, any other mysticism, any other vision, any other experience or anything like that can offer. A, 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 a sense of Christianity that's, that's built on, 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 on mysticism or even on, 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 on just like emotional highs and all that. And we, we get emotional as we sing. If you see me over here singing normally, you're thinking I'm about to jump through the ceiling. There's nothing wrong with emotion. I'm not saying that. But an emotion detached from Christ and detached from His finished work in us, Paul says this, this, stuff, this stuff is dangerous. Paul says it's misleading. But a life that is anchored in Christ and the fact that you've been raised with Him, that is where your hope lies. That is where your your joy lies. All this other stuff is lightweight. These visions of of, of angels and and all this stuff. It's like like getting amped about the Super Bowl pregame show and then turning off the game when it comes on. It makes no sense. Christ is supreme. Christ is glorious. Christ is the one that we are hidden with in God. And your life hidden with Christ in God. Hear this. Weary saint. Your life hidden with Christ in God is as sure 
as the love of God the Father has for Christ the Son. Do you catch that? Because you are united with Christ, you are hidden with Him. You are connected with Him. The Lord's care and goodness and graciousness and mercy to you is as sure and promised as His love for His very own Son. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So throughout these few verses, we see this reality of who we are in Christ. Mind set on Christ. Heart set on Christ. Birthed in new life in Christ. But There's also an anticipation of the coming of Christ. This is how we live now. But we're anticipating what verse 4 says, when Christ who is your life appears and you will also appear with Him in glory. So as we set our minds on Him, we yearn to be in His presence for eternity. This is a, this is a, a, a thing, theologically we call it the already, not yet. We have Christ, we dwell in Christ, we live in Christ, but not yet are we with Him perfectly and completely. So we think of the already, not yet, like, I think there's a really good illustration. Pete gave it to me. Uh, pastors, we always steal stuff from each other all the time. That's how we roll. But right now, we're in this place, we're in this place, this already not yet, of looking over the horizon at an ocean in the morning. The sun is coming up, but it hasn't cracked the horizon yet. We see the rays of the sun, we see the beauty of the light hitting the clouds, hitting the sky. We see that it's coming, we're experiencing that sunrise But we also wait for the finality for the sun to crack the horizon when we will see it fully. And so we're in this stage right now, mind set on Christ, heart set on Christ, living in light of the fact that we've been raised with Christ, but we're anticipating what? Being with Him for eternity. And so with all of these things, with anticipating Christ, oh, the responsibility, consider this in light of verses uh, 1 through 4 here, the responsibility that we as a congregation have together in Christ uh, to, to see that if we, we are with Him, that we are united with Him, that nothing we do in the life of the body is meaningless. Hundreds of people in this room united with Christ, hidden with Christ in God. Nothing is meaningless. In fact, the gathering of the body of Christ for weekly worship, we don't do it for entertainment's sake. We don't do it to tickle our fancies. It's, it's gather to behold and to delight together in the Christ who dwells within us. We can't get over that because He dwells with us. We are united with Him. And so we have a high God-given responsibility to observe His nature and His work within us and His Word that He has given us. We celebrate new birth as we celebrate baptisms. What do we celebrate? People buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. Catch that. We celebrate baptism in that. We remind ourselves of our union with Him and with one another in communion as we celebrate this unity of the body that we share with Christ. And in these things, we remind ourselves that we died with Him, that we were raised with Him, and that He reigns today. And we do this over and over and over and over and over again because it's totally impossible to exhaust the manifold glories of Christ at work within His people. 
We are raised with Him. He is reigning and He will be our reward. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Just as the promise that we have is secure in Christ, the life that is set upon Christ is all in preparation for being with Him. Do you understand that your life as a Christian, totally, 100%, all in preparation for dwelling in the presence of Christ for eternity? Everything marching towards that point. See, at the outset of our time to this morning, we saw the warning of getting a case of mistaken identity in regards to Christ, but there's also a warning in this passage of getting a case of mistaken identity in regards to who we are and in regards to what Christ is doing within us. Let us not lose sight of the fact that we are in Christ and we will see Christ and we will appear with Him in glory too. We won't behold him as if, yeah, there's, there's Jesus, there's my guy that won. We will behold him as we will say that we were crucified with him where our sin was paid for. We will walk out of that, we walked out of that tomb with him where we entered new life and we will appear with him in glory where we will see him and be united with him to behold and to delight in him. We will see his glory when he who is our life appears. We will actually not only just see his glory, but we will appear with him in glory. I don't even know all that means, but it's glorious. (laughs) The sun will break across that horizon and we will see our Lord fully. And we will be at home with our Lord. And we will experience the union with Him as sons and daughters of our God. As brothers and sisters with one another. Dear Christian. The death of Christ is your death to these empty works, to these pursuits of righteousness that cannot deliver. And the resurrection and reign of Christ is your resurrection and hope and life directly united with your Lord. Oh, how we anticipate that day. And oh, how we confidently look towards that day and trust in Him in this day because of the work that He has done in uniting us to Him. Let's pray together. Father, how glorious is our Christ. How merciful is His care. How kind is His provision. And how faithful is our Shepherd. I pray that You would help us all to grasp that we have died with Christ. And help us to trust that we have been raised with Christ and that He is reigning. He is reigning supreme. He is reigning gloriously. Let this influence and dictate the direction and the pattern of our lives. It's lives that are not set upon doing what we feel we have to do to justify ourselves before You. But as lives that are set upon You. The One in whom our lives are hidden and tied, and united. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.